0: The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. My name is Keith Palmer, and this is the workshop entitled How Christ Transforms Us in Our Diseases and Disabilities, so hopefully you're in the right place. And um, I'm thankful I have my uh, 16-year-old son traveling with me. He's here in the front row, so it's always a joy to uh, let my children come along with me rather than just leave them all at home. And, uh, And his name's Alan. He's my hero because... Um, I lost literally all of my notes for the four times I'm teaching today. And he just located them. So uh, a blessing in multiple ways. So, Well, let me pray and uh, we'll talk about our, our uh, topic here. Father, we realize that um, so much in the world today is not the way you designed it to be. And when we think about uh, disabilities and diseases... Uh, afflictions of all sorts. We know that those are, those are products of the fact that we live in a world that's been judged because of sin and uh, they bring a great source of suffering and hurt to our lives and difficulty. Um, thank you Lord that you're redeeming all things and that one day you will make all things to be transformed, to be just as they were designed to be and uh, so would you help us now as we live between Uh, the already and the not yet between uh, life in a fallen world now that you're redeeming and the life we have to come in Christ that uh, you will give us grace to come alongside those that are hurting and struggling and disabilities and diseases and, and those who care for them and love them as well and that Christ and who he is and who he calls us to be might bring a particular source of joy and help in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So, my name's Keith, I'm just a small town pastor from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but it's a joy to be with you. I am from Orange County, so for those of you that are in this area, this is coming back home. It seems that every time I come back to my hometown, the price of gas goes up, (laughs) the number of people on the freeway increases, uh, but the weather's always really nice, so it's good to be back here. Um, The idea for this talk... And and by the way, I'm not taking out my aggressions on the board here. This is a smart pen. This is a smart projector. We'll find out who's smarter, me or the projector, making it work here. But the idea for this uh, topic came from the fact that I have a brother with a significant disability. Uh, It's my wife and I here, my wife Lisa and myself. And in the middle is Uncle Scotty, as we now call him, my younger brother Scotty. He will be 36. Goodness, 36 next month my little brother and uh, he was born almost three months premature Uh, he was two pounds ten ounces and uh, for those of you that maybe have nursing background or medical background you understand pediatrics and and neuro uh, um, uh, prenatal uh, health has really improved in the last 30 years and this was back in the day before they understood that when you have a preemie um, You can give them steroids to cultivate lung development and whatnot, so that's before all those days, and so in his premature state uh, on his ventilator uh, to help him breathe, because his lungs weren't developed enough to do that on his own, he either got uh, too little oxygen, maybe too much oxygen to his brain, it caused brain damage, and uh, shortly thereafter he was diagnosed with a severe form of cerebral palsy. Uh, So he didn't talk for a very long time. Uh, He didn't develop a lot of the abilities that most of us have. Um, uh, In God's kindness and plan, uh, he never um, developed the ability to walk. Um, But uh, he is um, a testimony of God's grace. Uh, I often say that my little brother understands the gospel better than I do because he knows what it's like to live in great need. And I think those of us that have normal use of our faculties sometimes forget that those are just as much expressions of God's grace as those who lack those abilities. So I grew up in a home with a little brother with a disability. I watched my mom and dad go from, you know, great, a child, to oh no, to wow, to year after year after year of... um, Learning what that meant, the type of care. I, just out of curiosity, how many uh, know somebody with a, di- a disability? Maybe you have one in your family, caretaker. Okay, and we can add in here. It doesn't have to be something you're born with. It can be a cancer diagnosis. It can be something that is degenerative that comes on later in life, like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. Um, all sorts of afflictions that happen in this fallen world. So, so the idea for this talk came because that's my brother, and I love him, and I think that the gospel of Jesus has something particularly to share for people that struggle with significant disabilities and diseases and as we're going to see as well for those that caretake for them. Uh, One of the things that we need to remember as the church is that we rightly put attention on the person with the disability or the affliction and we often forget that the people around them that love that person and are oftentimes caring for that person need ministry and love and support too. So hopefully we'll try to try to pull all that together, but that's, that's where we're going and that's why I have a heart for this talk here. Uh, by the way, um, he and I love In-N-Out Burgers. So uh, we went down, we, we got in Tuesday and on Wednesday, our tradition is we take Uncle Scotty to In-N-Out Burger. Now, they did put In-N-Out Burgers in Texas a few years ago. Um, my parents thought they're never going to see me again because I don't have to come to Southern California for In-N-Out Burger, but uh, so that's what we do. So let's just think together about some of the challenges. And I just threw a couple up here, but obviously everyone's situation is a bit different. But uh, talk to me here. Think about the challenges that people with disabilities or diseases face that may be unique to them, Maybe things that you and I, and we all have challenges in this broken world, but we don't have the same challenges. So so let me just think with you about a few of those challenges as I grew up and as I continue to think of uh, my brother today. Uh, Things like this, eating. Did you eat this morning? Did everybody eat this morning? Did you do it by yourself? Anyone help you? Okay. For someone with a disability, um, that may be something that they need help with. Um, Dressing. Did you guys all dress yourselves this morning? Okay. most of us, that's true. Uh, For my brother and and thousands of other people, uh, they can't do that on their own. Uh, using the restroom, traveling. I remember my my brother, he was in high school and he won one of those trips to go to Walt Disney World. And uh, just getting somebody in a wheelchair on an airplane to travel from Southern California to Florida, you wouldn't believe the stress and the work involved in that. In fact, my parents got to the point where they didn't wanna travel, not because they didn't wanna do fun things, it was just too much work. It's like you gotta come home to have a vacation from your vacation. Um, communication, as I mentioned, uh, through, through God's common grace of wonderful speech therapists. My brother was able to talk, but several years after, most children begin speaking. Um, I mentioned he's going to be 36 uh, next month. Uh, he lives on his own with 24-hour care uh, in Irvine, for those of you that know Orange County. And um, he is in constant pain. And it took many, many years for us to realize this, but people with diseases and afflictions, or it could be someone going through cancer where the treatment is very painful or the cancer itself is painful, uh, maybe someone with a traumatic brain injury, maybe somebody who's diagnosed with some sort of chronic pain. Uh, I have a mother-in-law who um, had chronic pancreatitis, eventually had her pancreas removed, and, um, but she lives with constant abdominal pain. And uh, we could all go around the room. You know people like that, don't you? You have people in your life like that. Just constant pain. And, and you, may, you may be one of those people. You may be in constant pain. And there are the rest of us in the room that live relatively pain free. Um, surgeries, treatments, doctors. Um, uh, you, it, it is overwhelming what daily, and this is, this is like one day of living. Uh, temptations. Uh, are you tempted? Nod your head, you're tempted. Okay, we're we're tempted in many ways, the scripture says. Think about somebody that has a disability. What might be some ways that they would be tempted that would be different or in some way connected to their disability? How about this? I'm never going to be normal. You know, people that grow up and they have disabilities, they think, you know, I want to grow up, I want to get married, I want to have a family, I want to have a career, I want to go surfing, I wanna go skydiving, I wanna, right? And, and for some of those things, that may be very possible. For others, it may not be something that's possible for them to achieve. So, being taken advantage of. How many of you know someone with a disability or disease has been taken advantage of? This is, um, I don't wanna make this only about my brother here, but. Um, uh, one of the things that happens with cerebral palsy is, is uh, a person's muscles fire involuntarily. So if you see someone with CP, they're usually like this. You seen people like that? That's a cerebral palsy uh, person. Because their muscles are firing and they can't relax. It's an involuntarily involuntary firing of the muscles. And um, so what happens is they end up having joint problems. And what happened with my brother happens to many people with CP and that is, Um, they begin to have hip problems. And in fact, he had to have uh, a hip reconstruction and, and some other things. Well, it turns out that the doctor in Southern California who's known around the world as the expert for these hip replacement, hip surgeries, particularly for people with special needs like cerebral palsy, was totally, totally involved in numerous malpractice. Uh, and my brother had one of those surgeries where he was told that his hip was fixed. And they went in and they looked at the x-ray and it wasn't the, was not in the socket like it was. And they wanted to blow it off. And again, that was just our experience. But you understand that, that there's a lot of malpractice in the medical world. We're thankful for doctors and medicine. And most of those people are wonderful and do great. Uh, but people with disabilities are more prone to being taken advantage of Uh, not just in the medical community, but in society. How about this? Discouragement, depression, anxiety. Those may be things that we struggle with too, but people with disabilities, they they have their disability weighing down on them, contributing to those things as well. False refuges, we'll talk about these in a moment. Um, You guys know what a false refuge is? You're familiar with that language? The Bible uses these wonderful metaphors to talk about our walk with God. And, and one of the metaphors it uses, we see it in the Psalms and in the wisdom literature, Proverbs and Job and whatnot, is this idea of a refuge. And you know the verse, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength. So, so where are we supposed to run in our day of trouble? We run to the Lord, don't we? Okay? He's our refuge. He's our place of safety, our stronghold. And then the Bible contrasts that with all these false refuges or places that we run other than God when we're struggling. And uh, let me tell you some of the false refuges, particularly with people with a disability or disease. Assertiveness. I think, I think one of the worst things that has happened in the larger disability community is they have heard one cultural answer, and that is, you don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You demand your way, and you insist on your way until you get what you want. And that goes right in line with what uh, what Jeremy was talking about last hour, right? And walking in Philippians two, and considering others is more important, and, and not that there's a time to say, hey, you know, the law says I have access to this, or this is the right thing to do, certainly we want to encourage that. But this assertiveness, entitlement mentality, uh, and growing up around special needs children. uh, My mom was a assistive technology specialist for Orange County School District, so she took her computer background. And and with some of the disabilities, she brought technology into the classroom to help people with disabilities. And one of the things you see in so many families and so many people with disabilities is this entitlement mentality. Now, is it right that people that are the least of these be served and ministered to? Absolutely, and we should do that in the name of Jesus. But to teach them an entitlement mentality and an assertiveness model is actually pushing them away from the gospel rather than helping them to embrace the gospel. So we need to think about things like that. Isolation, escape, drugs, alcohol, I don't need to tell you that those are huge in the, the world of disabilities, chronic pain. Worldly answers, what does society do? Let's just throw money at them. Let's, let's patronize them. Um, demand equality, demanding rights. Um, those are just a few that I thought of. What are some things that you've discovered that are particular challenges for those with disabilities or diseases? Yes, sir. Um, I know a couple of people that have uh, disabilities because of lifetime things. hmm Yeah, the isolation refuges, right? The, and, and you know that's not unique. You know, we we know a lot of teenagers that run the video games, and they run the music, and they they run to a place where they can have an alternate reality almost. But that is a particular uh, uh, struggle for those disabilities, yes, man. They get very disconnected from the church, the body of Christ. That's right, and um, that's a tragedy, isn't it? Disconnected yeah. from the body. Yeah. Um, well, they are. Um, it's it's a spiritual battle with them that they did something to deserve this, right? And then even the church, like you did something to deserve this, right? Yeah, yeah, and that and, that, and you know the, the church of all places should be you know we should be the ones saying, let us help you. You know how can we serve you? How can we minister to you? And and you know, um, if you didn't grow up with it or you haven't been around it or you're not, you know you're not learned. The reason that a lot of people take a standoffish view of someone with a disability or someone with a disease that's very overt is they just don't know. And they're almost afraid. And what do we do when we're afraid of something? We we just don't engage sometimes. It's not that we don't care, necessarily. It's that sometimes we don't know how. We don't want to engage them in a way that makes them feel bad. And so out of ignorance and fear, we don't do anything. And the end result is we we alienate a community that's already alienated because they're different, yeah. Yes ma'am. Well, I work with somebody with a TBI and mm-hmm. um, the feeling of uselessness. Yes. Uselessness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes ma'am. The of abandonment. Abandonment. abandonment from God. Yes. Abandoned by, by That's God. right. Yeah, abandoned. God doesn't care about me. No one cares about me. Yes ma'am. Um, anger and even hatred mm-hmm. toward the able-bodied. Yes. Um, mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Right. Yeah. So angry and hatred at able bodied, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I just uh, mentioned something that I didn't really see a focus on. is that There are some people that have disabilities that are invisible hmm. yeah. to the naked eye. Right. Still very prominent and has to. Yeah, and that's especially true of like chronic pain, th- things that aren't obvious. You know, if, if you were to see, you know, uh, a cerebral palsy child or a muscular dystrophy child or you know, a Downs uh, syndrome uh, child and you go, that's obvious, but it might be a chronic pain issue, it might be, you know, they're coming out of chemo treatment, it might be something uh, neurological, and yeah, you're absolutely right. So they end up suffering alone and and, uh, and we don't are not aware of it. So yeah, one more? I was gonna say dumb line, too, is autism. Mm-hmm. our child's behavior. Yeah, right. Right, yeah. Yeah, so and we're going to talk about this. Um, Here's one of the challenges. Um, How will I come to know a person's unique challenges? How are you going to know that? You have to listen, which means you have to do what? Spend time with them. Engage them. Learn. Be observant. Be observant ask, you know, compassionate questions. Um, now, that sounds a lot like what theme that this conference might be evolving around. Sounds like discipleship counseling, doesn't it? That sounds like every member ministry. It sounds like, uh, to use um, Scott's term, it sounds like truthing. Uh, speak the truth in love, right? It, that, that's... So this is not unique to like, oh, hey, we have to go do this ministry for folks that are struggling in this way. This is normal church discipleship. And because someone might be different or you have questions or fears or, or, or you're ignorant, doesn't mean that we just say, okay, I'm not going to do this. I mean, th- these are our people that need our love and care in our ministry. So we must engage them. And the thing, too, um, everybody's challenges are unique. So just like biblical counseling, you know, if it's somebody who has a cancer diagnosis, and you read a book on what cancer treatment it's like, and then you walk in thinking, "Well, hey, I know what this person is going through." I mean, that might help you, but do not do that. Roman or uh, Proverbs 18, uh, was it 18:13, 18:15 uh, applies uh, to the same situation, right? So don't give an answer before you hear. Um, okay, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to talk with you about three texts in the Bible that I think will help people struggling with diseases and and disabilities be transformed, particularly in their identity, as they think about their disability or their disease, okay? And we're going to do one kind of passage that kind of looks backward to the past. We'll do one that helps them to think about their identity in the present, and then we'll look at a third one, you guessed it, for the future, okay? The first one we're going to look at is in John chapter 9. So if you would turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 9. Uh, This is one of those uh, watershed passages in the Bible, and uh, this passage just reminds me that not a whole lot has changed in regard to people with disabilities in uh, 2,000 years. A lot of the same fears, a lot of the same questions, a lot of the same dynamics, and uh, so let me just read the passage to you. Uh, it's, It's an extended passage, so we'll just really look at the first part of it today for our time. But I trust that you're familiar with it. John chapter 9. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, "Uh, Is Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Um, so, let's stop right there. Uh, what do we learn about how we think about diseases and disabilities and people that struggle with those in terms of faith and Christ and identity? Um, so, let me just give you a couple of uh, bullet points here you can fill in in the blanks in your notes here, okay? There we go. Um, before I do that, I, I got ahead of myself here. Before we jump into all this, this is a question I want you to ponder, okay? And I'll, we'll answer it along the way. What is normal and abnormal in a fallen world? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, Alan Francis, uh, many of you know uh, of him uh, and his work. Uh, he was the chairman of uh, the committee for DSM-IV and um, wrote a book called Saving Normal. Very interesting book. Um, If if you want to hear one of the most foremost psychologists of our day talk about mental health. And he says in his book Saving Normal that statistical analysis of people is utterly insufficient to determine normality. That's a secular psychologist, one of the most prominent in our day. And you know what, he's right. Because we are fallen people living in a fallen world, and then we study other fallen people and we determine what normal is. And I think that a lot of our misperceptions about people with diseases and disabilities are because we have not thought theologically careful enough about this question. The fact that you and I enjoy relatively good health right now, and, and maybe, I'm, I'm sure many of you have diseases and afflictions, and some of you have chronic pain, and some of you are recovering from surgeries. We just don't know about it unless you know, we talk to each other. But the fact that we're here in this place is an example of grace, isn't it? That what we think of as normal health is really just wonderful grace that God extends to us every day in a fallen world. Okay? All right, so now we'll we'll answer that along the way. I forgot about that. Okay, so here we are. John 9, why am I like this? This is how we want to help people to think about their past. The first thing that just jumps off the page, and if you're going over this with someone who is struggling with a disease or a disability, first thing we notice is this. Jesus Jesus notices the person with a disability. Okay, you missed it. Jesus notices the person with the disability. So when they say, no one sees me, no one cares about me, my family's abandoned me, society is taking advantage of me, God doesn't care about me. There's this whole story that is designed in part to demonstrate that Jesus sees those people, doesn't he? In fact, we often find Jesus... Uh, hanging out with people that in first century society most people wouldn't want to hang out with, would they? The tax collectors, the poor, the the, the prostitutes, the afflicted, the diseased. Um, Jesus notices, so don't don't overlook that. Jesus is walking by and he sees a man born, uh, born blind and he doesn't keep on walking, he stops. And I think that that's theologically and exegetically significant. Now, notice a second thing here. What is the immediate presumption of the question that his disciples ask him? Now, these aren't the Pharisees. These aren't the hoi polloi, the Gentiles. These are his disciples. What's, what? what sin. Yeah. They, they saw one cause for this man's blindness. It was sin. And you had two choices. His sin or his parents' sin. And that was a, the theological understanding of the day. Now, what does that sound like? You've heard this theology before. What's that? Okay, yes, that's right. We talked about that in uh, Brian Borgman's workshop last night, right? Doesn't this sound like Job's friends? All right, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. The, the, the original uh, three stooges or the three, whatever they are. Um, yeah, because c- they go to Job, and, and what's their constant cry to Job? Repent. Repent. Where's your hidden sin? You need to repent. That's why you have this affliction. Remember, he had the skin disease. We'll talk about Job in a moment. Um, it's what we call retributive theology. It's, a, you know, do, you do what's right, and God blesses you. You do what's wrong, and God punishes you. So if you come into, the, if you come into the, the world and you have this affliction, well, man, you must have really done something wrong right from the beginning. Or maybe it was your parents. But notice this, we are prone to believe wrong ideas about ourselves regarding our diseases and disabilities, aren't we? Now we may not, the cultural viewpoint today may not be there's a one-to-one relationship between your sin and your disease, but do we have wrong ideas? Do, do, do people that have diseases and disabilities think wrongly about themselves in terms of the origin? Absolutely. And you would be surprised how many Christians think that when a tragedy happens that God is punishing them in some way. I mean, is that your experience? Now, now, does God love us enough to discipline us as his children? Absolutely. So we need to have a category called the father trains his children. But that's not the only thing in the Bible in terms of when, a, when an affliction comes that I think, man, God must be just you know, giving me what I deserve, so where's, what am I doing wrong? People with disabilities struggle with wrong ideas about themselves. Why am I like this? Why did God make me like this? Why can I not be like other people? You know, I, uh, myself, I have another brother, and, and me and my other brother are able-bodied. So why did little brother end up with a disability? You know, why did I get to play baseball and volleyball and run track, and, and he didn't? Why? Why? Yeah, why? So I just want you to remember this, and, and we know... We'll get to the, the correction here in a moment. But just when you minister to somebody with a disease or a disability, mark it, you will find wrong ideas that they are carrying about themselves and about the nature of their disease. Now, that's true for able-bodied people, too, right? That's true for the rest of us. But it's particularly true. And we see that here as Jesus demonstrates in his culture. Now, we know... Um, Uh, that they believe wrong ideas about ourselves. And then with that is this idea that we are prone to believe wrong ideas about God regarding our diseases and disabilities. So you got to read between the lines here. But what is implied in the disciples question? Who sinned him or his parents that God would afflict him with this blindness? That's what's not said. You know, the disciples aren't thinking, you know, God's just off doing whatever. When they ask that question, what they're saying is, God gave this man blindness as a punishment for either his sin or his parents. Which one is it, Jesus? So not only do people who struggle with diseases and disabilities tend to believe wrong things about themselves, they also tend to think wrong things about God as well. And uh, two of the most important questions in any counseling situation is this. What does my friend here think about themselves, and what do they think about God? And you've got to answer both of those questions if you're going to help them. Now, hold your place here in, uh, in John, and flip back to the book of Job for a moment. Um, Job's like a Christian classic. I heard a pastor say, uh, a Christian classic is a book that every Christian owns and no one has read. <laughs> So maybe that's true. I, I think that most Christians have a casual awareness of Job. We, we know Job 1 and 2, and we know the end of it where God steps on. The, it's that middle section that we tend to skip in our Bible reading plan, the, the poetic back and forth that sounds like something that Shakespeare wrote um, in terms of one of his plays. Uh, we're going to go to Job, and uh, let, yeah, let's start in chapter 3, actually. Because... I want you to see that Mr. Job, who the Bible tells us was a very righteous man who walked with God when his affliction came and You know the story, right? And In one day, he lost his livelihood, his retirement, his animals, most of his servants, and his 10 precious children, one day. And then in the second round, he loses um, his health uh, and his dear wife, who in that culture uh, would have, uh, she's looking at her husband he's going to die they've lost all of their retirement um, the, the culture of the day said well God must be afflicting you so family abandons Job friends abandon them and there he is sitting on the ash heap outside of the city awaiting his death and Mrs. Job is sitting there thinking my husband's going to die what am I going to do uh, and in that culture her choices were to go on the street probably be a prostitute or to just turn over and die In Job? No, just the Bible in general. Uh, New American Standard. Yeah. So in Job chapter 3, this is after his affliction has been going on for some time. Chapter 3, verse 1, Job opens up his mouth. He curses the day of his birth. Job says, let the day perish on which I was to be born, and night which said a boy is to be conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it. And he goes on in, in one of the most graphic descriptions of what depression looks like in the Bible. And he basically says to God, if my life was going to be this hard, why did you even let me live? You ever sat with someone with chronic pain? You ever heard him say things like that? If it was going to be this painful, why, why did God even let me live? And, and notice, he starts to bring God into it here. Let not God care... Above it. Flip the chapter over to chapter 6. Look at verse 2. This is Job speaking. Chapter 6, verse 2. Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore my words have been rash. Verse 4. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. What's he saying about God there? God is like the archer who dips his arrow in poison and aims and shoots at me. Right? Flip the page of chapter 7. Look at verse 1. Let's pick it up in verse 3. So I am allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. When I lie down, he's trying to sleep, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues and I am continually tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and the crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be On me but I will not be when a cloud vanishes it is gone so he who goes down to Sheol meaning the grave does not come up he will not return again to his house what's he saying he's saying I can't sleep I'm in constant pain I just want to die and the night just continues verse 11 so I will not restrain my mouth just a footnote sometimes people in chronic pain get to the point where they hurt so much they just don't care about anything and they will be blunt, they will be hurtful, they will be demanding, because what happens in chronic pain is you kind of just pull in on yourself in your pain. And so Job says, I don't care. I'm not restraining my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. This is verse 11. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say, he's talking to God now. If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you, God, frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions, so that that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pain. I waste away I will not live forever. Leave me alone. Verse 17, what is man that you magnify him, that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning, you try him every moment. Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Meaning he dies have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? What's he saying? God's afflicting him. He's not like he's trying to get a decent night's sleep. He can't sleep. Then he finally falls asleep, and God gives him night terrors. And this righteous godly man that we learned about in chapter 1 that, that the, the divinely inspired narrator says was the, was the greatest spiritual man of this day, we see him spiraling down in his view of God. Flip the page, look at chapter 9, verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why? Verse 17. For he, God, bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. And he goes on and spirals down. Listen, by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, he, his God is a monster. Now, how did he go from righteous man, greatest of the East, you know, teaching Bible studies with his kids, to God is a monster? His view of God changes as his affliction and disease presses heavy down upon him. So when we're thinking about people that are struggling with a disease or a disability, what do they think about themselves? What do they think about God? I guarantee you, you will find areas where caring ministry is needed to them. Because if they're not thinking about God rightly, and they're not thinking about themselves rightly, you're not going to be able to help them. Now, now be honest with me. If this is who God really is, if God really was like what Job is saying, would you turn to him in your day of trouble? Would you find refuge in him? Would you go for grace and mercy to help in your day of need? No, you run for the hills from this God who is needlessly, recklessly, and without cause, afflicting, without relent. Okay, I wish we could go on Job all day long, but uh, um, one of my favorite books, and so much we can learn there about ministering to people that struggle with illnesses there, okay? So we need to be careful there. Back to, back to John. Now listen, we are prone to see health as normal rather than grace in a fallen world. You need to get this. Uh, now, Job is actually a good example in chapter 1 where you know, his, his affliction comes, his kids die, he loses his animals, loses his servants, loses his livelihood. And he, what does he say? Do you remember what he says in 121? Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Right? The Lord gave and the Lord Took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, is Job crazy? No, he's not crazy. He actually believes what he's saying. So how can you say the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord? How can you say that? He's looking at ten graves that he and his wife just dug, and his kids' bodies are lying in those graves. And that's what he says. You can only say the Lord gives the Lord takes away if you see everything that you have in your life as a gift of God's grace. Right? Grace means I don't deserve it. God kindly gives it to me. So if I had the joy of ten children for a season, what's that? That's grace. If God takes it away, is that painful? Absolutely. Uh, Some of you probably had a child die. Or know somebody that had unspeakably painful. And yet the Lord gave, the Lord take away. It's all grace. If God gives it, it's his kind grace. If he takes it away, I didn't deserve it in the first place. So I can thank him even for the season of grace that I had, right? Well, that's radical stuff, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that only Christians, what, what did Deepak say last night? You're either crazy or you're a Christian. That, there's another example of it. But that's, that's what Job is saying. It's all grace. And the reality is that God purposes diseases and disabilities to put the work of God on display. Back John 9 verse 3. Jesus answers. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now what does he mean? What does he mean by that? Well, he's going to heal him here in a minute. Mm-hmm. What about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? He's got this thorn in the flesh that was given to him. Implication by God. And Paul says, okay, Lord, three times, please take this away. And what does God say? My grace is sufficient. Yeah, God says, no. God says, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you for my power do you know it my power is perfected in your weakness now now we got to get our brain around that what's he saying whether it's a disease or an affliction or a trial or a struggle god purposes those things in our life why so that the power of jesus in you and in me will be more clearly seen than if the affliction wasn't there. The idea is the spotlight of God's grace and Christ's power in your life is more bright and visible and attracts the attention that God intends for his grace and for the purpose of Jesus because of that affliction than if you didn't have it. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, well, if that's the way it's going to be, He said, what did he say? Most gladly then I will rejoice in my weaknesses and my trials and my afflictions for Christ's sake. Why? Because when I'm weak, his strength is seen more clearly in me. Now, this is very hard because if there was a way to heal my brother... Would you do anything? I would too. And yet God's wisdom is not man's wisdom, is it? It is not the will of God in this life to heal every person physically of their diseases and afflictions. I know I'm competing with what you hear on, on Christian TV. I, I understand. I'm, not, I'm a different, different message here. Why? Why would God not want to heal everyone? I thought he was a loving God. I thought he was a compassionate God. Well, he is. But brothers and sisters, there is something more valuable than even the physical healing of everybody in this planet. And that is that the power of Jesus and gospel light would be more clearly seen to the praise of his glory and to the attraction of unbelievers to the gospel. That's why he doesn't always physically heal. And that's what Jesus is saying. This isn't an accident. This is by my design that the work of God would be more clearly seen in him. And then he heals him, and through the healing, what is he doing? He's drawing the Pharisees and the pagans and the the Jews that were all confused theologically to see that the Son of Man is here, isn't he? And if he can heal physically, you know what that means? He must really be the Messiah. This must be the Son of God. This this must be the promised one of old, right? Okay, I'm preaching to you a little bit, but that's how this goes. Okay, so we, we must do that. Now, the footnote, and I alluded to this, is this health and wealth gospel. And um, by the way, um, if you would rather just have a copy of the slides, uh, my email address is in there somewhere. Just send me an email. I'm happy to tell you the slide. Take a picture. Um, I'm trying to give you enough time, but if for some reason I don't, uh, I can make those slides available. The health and wealth gospel particularly takes advantage of of the diseased and the disabled and, and you talk about people that, that suffer in the darkness this happens all the time um, so let's just remind ourselves of this the primary work of Jesus at this time in history is not to bring physical healing to everyone who believes but to offer salvation to all who believe that's why that's the offer right in the Gospels, the physical healings of Jesus were designed to authenticate his identi- identity and illustrate his ability to heal spiritually. That's Matthew 9, right? Remember the guy that was lame and they bring him and uh, Jesus says, son, um, you know, take up your, ba- your pallet, rise up and walk. And he does. But before he physically heals him, what does he say? He looks at the crowd and he says, what's easier to do to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, why did he ask that question first? Think about that. Why did he ask the question first? What's easier to verify? That someone's sins are forgiven or that they actually are healed and can stand up and walk home? What's easier to verify? Standing up, up, right? Being physically healed, okay? What's actually the more valuable need? Forgiveness of your sin. So, Jesus says... So that it will be known that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the greater need. I'm going to prove it to you by by doing what you can verify right now. Get up, take your pallet, and go home. That's why Jesus healed physically. Now, footnote, does God heal people miraculously today? Absolutely He does. Absolutely He does. And, And we should pray for that. It's good to pray for that. What I'm saying is, The primary reason Jesus came was not to physically heal everybody, but so that everybody could be saved as they uh, repent and trust him. So when false teachers bring a false gospel of health and healing, which take advantage of people both spiritually and usually financially, they violate those most vulnerable and they rob God of the glory he deserves when he aims to display his works through one's disability instead of taking it away. Now, this is radical stuff. John 9 is, is, a, is a almost drop your Bible sort of chapter because Jesus is saying, I purposed this for my glory. All right. Number two, um, how do we think about the present? How should we help people with disabilities to think about themselves? Well, to go here, we're going to just look at a text that you're very familiar with already in Galatians chapter 2. This is an identity verse. Uh, This is one of our go-to identity verses in the context. He's talking about the the Galatian heresy with the Judaizers. Remember people that were wanting to add uh, Jewish laws to Christian gospel faith. It's, you know, grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, plus some of these extra works And Paul brings it back to the simplicity of a trust and a walk with Christ. And he declares his identity in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I want you to see that there, there are two ditches on either side of the road that you can run the car off into. Okay, Two false refuges. I can take the car off that way. I can take the car off the other side in terms of my identity with a disability. Here's one false refuge. Here's one ditch you run the car into. I am my disability. My disease, my cancer, my Parkinson's, my CP, my Down syndrome, whatever it is, defines me, my traumatic brain injury. And that leads to things like depression and anxiety and worthlessness and hopelessness, doesn't it? So that's a wrong way to embrace my disability. But you know, you can run the car off the road on the other side of the road, too, can't you? There's another ditch to avoid, and that is I am not my disability. Almost like I don't have a disability. I just want everybody to pretend that I don't have a disability, and I'm going to pretend like I don't have a disability. And, and how do I do that? Well, then I adopt assertiveness training. I, I develop an entitlement mentality. I walk around imposing everything on other people. I kind of have a chip on my shoulders. And I don't know if you know, but this, this is huge in the disability community. And this is the answer. This is the best the culture can do for the disability community. And I'm here to tell you that neither, neither one of those honors Jesus. There's a better identity. And the better identity is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We come to Christ in repentant faith and the old self dies. The old self dies. I have been crucified. it was no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But my identity is in him, though I have a disability that will be addressed in my glorification. See, God is going to address the physical sufferings of our life, isn't he? He is going to address the diseases and the afflictions. It's just not a part of justification. And it's not a part of sanctification. It's a part of what? Glorification. It's included in the gospel. We're just not there yet. Well, why would God delay that? So that the purposes and work of God might be seen in him. Most gladly, I will rejoice about my weaknesses. Because when I'm weak, then I am strong. That's why God delays to glorification. So, the life that I now live, I live by faith. What does he mean there? He says, I think about myself through the lens of Christ's person and work, which is accessed by faith. So, I am a Christian that has cancer. I am a Christ follower that has muscular dystrophy. I am a Christ follower who is struggling with a head injury right now, or chronic pain, or whatever it is. You understand the difference? It's my identity is not in my disease or disability, nor is it denying it categorically and just saying I, I am normal in every sense of the word compared to able-bodied people. Both of those are false refuges. It's I am in Christ. That's my identity. You say, well, how can I do that when I can't feed myself and get to the bathroom and clothe myself? And those feelings of worthlessness and self-hatred and depression and anxiety weigh down on you and the jealousy and envy of able-bodied people, how do you do that? You do it by faith You wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you say I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me My we- my wheelchair doesn't define me My chronic pain doesn't define me My savior defines me And notice th- th- this isn't like you know Jesus is my cheerleader and he loves me so I should love me no that's that's another false gospel This is I've died And I have a new identity that's wrapped up in him okay and i love this who loved me and gave himself up for me that's the value of my savior isn't it that he loves me and gives himself up for me all right last text second peter or excuse me uh, first peter chapter one uh, i suspect that the speakers will all be kind of cherry picking from the same texts throughout this week because uh uh, there are places where identity just shows up, and we, we can't we can't restrain ourselves. First Peter chapter one. We talked about the past. Why am I like this? The present. How should I think about myself now? My identity is Christ. Number three. What hope can I have? And I'll just put the screen up here, so you want to start writing or take a picture or whatever. Oh, two. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. There's a way to back up. I promise. Uh oh. It's down here somewhere. Okay. I'm gonna cheat. I know how to do it that way. All right. Okay. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this, in this, You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that, here's the purpose, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you do not, you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the future. What hope can I have? Um. This happens every now and then. I remember vividly one of the first times it happened. I was in seminary uh, up in L.A., and um, I was dreaming that my little brother was walking around in heaven and there was Christ and there were all the saints of history and here's my brother who for years and years and years and years therapists working with him people doing surgeries trying to get him to walk it just, it just didn't work and there he is, walking in glory. Um, the Bible says the most amazing part about our future, whatever our affliction, a disease, a disability, is that we have a living hope in the gospel now, and that comes at, through an inheritance that is reserved in heaven. And that inheritance that is reserved in heaven is protected by God who ensures, verse 5 says, it's it's protected by the power of God to ensure that that salvation comes one day. And that glory means you are with Christ, you no longer struggle with sin, you no longer struggle with suffering, or whatever your affliction, including diseases and disabilities, and one day those things will be gone. And of course, Revelation 21 says God will wipe away every tear, Every trial, no sorrow, no pain, those things are all gone. And Peter says, okay, in light of that, in light of the day that's coming, we rejoice in that even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So here's what he's saying. Future hope fuels present perseverance. That's what he's saying. The future hope of heaven fuels future perseverance. And what does it do? He says God's purpose in that is it proves, verse 7, your faith. It it demonstrates the reality of faith. And what's going to happen? It will result one day in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how do I think about my disease in the past? Why did God do this? How do I think about myself in the present? I've been crucified with Christ. What hope can I have in the future? You have an inheritance that is secure in heaven. And that reality that you will one day see him as he is and inherit that wonderful blessing provides a source of encouragement so that we can persevere now. Okay, so just very quickly, um, that's the bulk of what I really wanted to say. How do we think about this in counseling? Um, Can I just tell you, be the church. If you're being the church, that's all you got to know. You say, what does the church do? Well, Ephesians says we speak the truth in love. We serve one another. We build up one another in love. We encourage one another. Romans 12 says we have spiritual gifts, and we use those to help one another. So if we're thinking about helping particularly those that have diseases and disabilities, that's going to be emphasizing relationships. You know, move toward those people. Don't back away in fear and ignorance. Don't, you're not going to hurt them. You're, you're not going to... You know, get to know them, engage with them. Do what, here's a tip, do what you would do with any other person. Talk to them, look them in the eye, offer to shake their hand. If if they can't get their hand out, wait. If they don't shake their hand, then say, that's okay, how are you doing today? Just do what you would do with any other person. Don't be intimidated by that. Education. Um, there are probably people in your church that have gone to school and study this sort of thing, or, or they're working with people, or they've, they've been a caretaker. Talk to those people. And we need to educate our congregations. Participate. Get them involved in the, in the body of Christ. They can be greeters. They can be smilers at the door. Uh, whatever their abilities are, you can find a way that they can serve in the local church. All this, you know, I, don't, I can't do anything, and I don't belong. And the church, that should not be a place where that is said in the church. Because we're a body, right? And every body member has a function. So figure out what that is and, and get them involved. Ministry to them. And many of your churches have uh, specific ministries to the disability community or to someone who's going through cancer treatment. And that we need to do things like that then, and tailor our ministry to those things. Get them involved in serving in ways that are helpful. And then I would just say within the biblical boundaries, be as creative and as flexible as you know how to be. Uh, no person should ever be turned away um, because of some limitation that they have physically or mentally, we're going to adapt and we're going to figure out how to connect them to Jesus and to the works of the church any way we can. Um, this is a biblical counseling conference. Remember that biblical counseling and discipleship is what we need to be doing. Um, so let's not forget those that are struggling with diseases and disabilities, even after the surgery, right? After the, the treatment, um, Knowing that these folks need our care and love in their life. And then lastly, um, don't forget about Mrs. Job. Do not forget. Uh, you know, Mrs. Job gets bad press. You know, she gets one line in the whole 42 chapters curse God and die. Okay, there you go. Now, again, when you put her situation in context, she's looking at the loss of everything and a life of future prostitution, probably. So we need to give a little grace, a little slack to Mrs. Job. And we often forget that the caretaker is suffering with the person that has the affliction. And often the caretaker is suffering differently and in some ways even more because they don't feel like they have anybody to talk to. They feel bad for talking to people. They feel like, well, I'm, you know, this, this person is the one in need, and, and I'm, just, I'm not doing anything compared to the, the person that's going through the disease. And so they suffer alone. So don't forget uh, the Mrs. Jobs that are out there. And finally... Remember that God often displays his glory through those with disabilities by demonstrating that those with physical ailments are often quicker to see their need for a savior. Um, Mark chapter 9 reminds us that those that are the least of these um, are those that see often more clearly. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick, right? And God often displays His glory through those with disabilities by illustrating the greater need and the more profound miracle is the gift of spiritual sight and salvation, even more than physical sight. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 18, it is better to die in Christ with a physical ailment than it is to die without Jesus in physical health. Okay. Well, I don't want to make you late for lunch, so let me pray and we'll go. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time together. Would you give us grace to come alongside those with diseases and disabilities with the hope of the gospel. Help us to be the church and ministry of care to them and to, their care t- and to their caretakers for your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. amen. <clears throat> Copyright 2019 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.